0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco. This is Bay
1: Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here are Doug Collum and Irene Yen. Welcome to Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM's Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. We are broadcasting live from the campus of Wharton, San Francisco, here in downtown San Francisco, right next door to Silicon Valley on a beautiful um, summer for us day. Uh, I'm your host, Irina Yen, along with my co-host, Doug Collum. And coming up in the first hour of today's show, we'll be speaking with Shauna Tellerman, the founder and CEO of ModCee a startup that leverages 3D visualization technology, which allows you to see furniture and home decor uh, in a virtual model. Um, Joining us in our second hour will be Herb Fockler, a partner of Wilson, Sonsini, Goodrich, and Rosati in the Corporate and Securities Group, and with her we'll be discussing um, trends in the startup community and the changing nature of the venture capital industry.
2: Um, so for people just dialing in, first, we want you to know that here in the West Coast, it's beautiful weather. It's 80 <laughs> degrees out on a, on an absolutely brilliant autumn day.
1: Right, and it is our summer this time of year. And it. so
2: for people on the East Coast who are, um, you know, dealing with humidity and rain and so forth, uh, it's annoying when you hear this, but I do want to make the point that we're having some really nice weather <laughs> here in <laughs> San oh Francisco. Sheesh. So for people who, who are just dialing in and, and listening to our program, uh, Bay Area Ventures is all about entrepreneurship and startups and venture capital here and predominantly here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, we are starting to, um, I wouldn't say deviate from our theme, but I think we're trying to show more diversity in terms of uh, the kinds of guests we're bringing on the program. So, oh my god we have a lawyer coming on the program (laughs) uh we have a woman ceo who's our first guest and that's uh, that's still a rarity here in silicon valley yeah
1: we'll talk about that Uh,
2: we have a uh, we're planning on bringing an auditor on board for one of these programs and i think we even may even have a writer from uh, one of the one of the prominent san francisco business journals so you never know what's going to happen here on the program we broadcast live every monday at four o'clock p.m pacific that's 7 p.m. Eastern if you're still commuting. And uh, we re-air the program again during the week. And as a reminder, we do entertain callers. We This is a talk show. So if you've got a question for our guests, you can reach us at 844-WHARTON, uh, 844-942-7866.
1: So as we mentioned earlier, we are joined now in the studio by our first guest, Shauna Tellerman, who is the founder and CEO of ModSea. Shauna's journey has been really interesting, as Doug um, alluded to. Um, from design and technology, before founding Modzy, she was in venture investing and entrepreneur. Uh, in 2009, Shauna was named one of Business Week's best young entrepreneurs. So we can't wait to hear more about it. Shauna, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So we're really excited. You have a really unique background, as we mentioned, and we'd love to hear about it. I was wondering if you could share it with the audience. You know your journey in design and technology as an entrepreneur, as a venture investor. Could you tell us about your journey? We'd love to hear
0: about it. Yeah. Well, so as we were just talking about a very unplanned journey, I, um, I went to Carnegie Mellon for fine arts. I was one of those students who loved math and science and I loved fine arts and I couldn't quite figure out where they blended together until I took this incredible course called building virtual world worlds. It was very early VR, virtual reality. Taught by Randy Pausch, who is um, a professor who ended up passing away. He wrote The Last Lecture, which if you haven't read that book, you should read it. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 Incredible, incredible. Uh, Professor changed my life well before he wrote that book um, through virtual reality. So I took this course, Building Virtual Worlds, and it like – it opened the world to me. It was finally the moment where I saw where kind of math and science and arts all came together, and that was graphics. Uh, So I still didn't know what I was going to do, but I went into graduate school for entertainment technology at Carnegie Mellon.
1: Which sounds really cool. I was wondering, can you tweet? Doug and I were looking at that. Wow, that's cool. Master of entertainment technology. It's like magic wand stuff. I don't, what is that? (laughs)
0: We'd like to know. We'd like to know. Absolutely. Well, it's um. It is a lot of people who want to go into video game development. That's uh-huh. a big portion of it and entertainment technology. Obviously, that's mm-hmm. the blending of kind of entertainment fields and technology. Um, a good portion went into kind of educational, um, both like graphics and mm-hmm. startups and larger um, like leapfrog, larger companies right, focused right. in that area. Um, and then a subset of us uh sort of carved our own path and have started businesses and companies um, that have evolved over time uh most recently, I would say they might be in the virtual reality space or they might be in augmented reality wow. um, yeah it 's been it 's kind of what you make of
1: it right and then so you, so you're a Carnegie Mellon. You're like, oh my goodness, everything my passion can converge here. There is such a thing, and I can, you know, pull all my passions together. And then what happened after that? You mentioned some of your classmates, like you, uh, um, started businesses. And and what eventually led you to found Modzy? I'm sure there's a step between point A and that point B, and a lot happened in the in the middle.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Too many things happened to probably go into too much detail, but um. Yeah, I, so I interned out here at Electronic Arts on The Sims, which is like one oh, part yeah. of the thread. <laughs> um, so you'll see where the application is to Modsy. Um I ended up working on a project in graduate school that was taking video game technology and training emergency responders um, post 9-11. So we were able to set up kind of, um, it was hazmat specific. So set up these kind of hazardous materials and terrorist training scenarios for uh, first responders where they um, could be in a network environment and log into these very realistic looking scenes and respond in real time. Really cool technology. Um, There was enough going on around that that I felt like, I don't want to just put this on a shelf and like move on in my career. I really want to see where this goes. And, um, one of the professors at the entertainment technology center sort of said, why don't you start a company? And, uh, knowing very little and being naive enough, I said, sure, that doesn't sound too bad. <laughs> why not?" <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that was the first, that was my first startup. It was acquired by Autodesk after, uh, lots of changes and maybe many pivots later, um, Autodesk acquired us in 2000. So can I just pause there, yeah. Shauna?
2: So how how many employees did you have in that company by the time it was acquired? Tiny, twelve. Okay, but it was still it was a it was a authentic startup that actually got traction, and you found a buyer for it.
0: Yeah, it was well. It got traction first in emergency response world, but then we very quickly realized this is where having business experience probably would have helped. Um, It's hard to sell to emergency responders and the the sales volume wasn't there at a meaningful enough level. Um, So we had a big change in the company's approach uh, at the same moment that cloud was taking off. At that point, it was really just called hosted environments. Mm -hmm. And so we went very early on to AWS. We started building workflows for 3D in the cloud. Um, and we opened up an environment to be able to develop not just training simulations, but also games and other 3D. Uh, at that point, virtual worlds was really kind of the thing. Yeah. Um, but that workflow between cloud and desktop for 3D was ultimately what was most valuable about that business. Uh, we didn't know it at the time. And so <laughs> that uh, Autodesk had, like Adobe, had a software business, boxed software business, was moving to a cloud-based business. And there were very few people out there focused on this particular niche. And so they found us, we talked to them for over a year and then ended up
1: yeah, joining Autodesk. And it was amazing. And was this oh, were you on the West Coast already because Autodesk is based out here, or are you still on the East Coast, you know, where Carnegie Mellon is, or you had been out here a already? little bit of both. No, so <laughs> yeah,
0: I moved out here in um, actually pre pre second crash. I moved mm-hmm. out here like 2007, mm-hmm. 2008. Raised our Series A. I realized that there was. Uh, if you were doing a startup, a lot of the capital is out here. Right. I had a great team though in Pittsburgh, an incredible engineering team, uh, talents, very different there and access to talent is very different. Uh, probably even more so now. Right. Um, so the company was still there. I moved out here. I went back and forth between San Francisco and Pittsburgh, which was, uh, that's kind of exhausting, easy. right? <laughs> that rhythm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, but yes, then, uh, Thankfully, not only was Autodesk out here, but they had been building um, just right here. They, they had been building uh, their headquarters to be more and more in the city versus out in Marin. So it was um, it took a two-mile commute for me and cut it to one mile when I joined Autodesk. That's excellent. <laughs> you know, as we were saying,
2: I mean, you've missed a rare opportunity here because you described this, this career path as being inadvertent. And, you know, you could have said this is totally by design. You know it was a very carefully plotted right. <laughs> series of steps that culminated with the founding of modzi yeah
0: so I wish. I yeah. Like, <laughs> of course it's, a straight, line. <laughs> it's it a straight line it would be so right. much less
1: stressful i think <laughs> when you're younger to think yeah. that there was a grand plan <laughs> so now you're out here autodesk acquires you and you're now on the west coast and then you're with them for a little bit
0: yeah so i spent two years there i thought actually i would spend longer Um, because it's great. It was a great company. Uh, it, it does the thing that I'm most passionate about, which is solves technology. Autodesk
2: right here in the city. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, Just a a couple blocks away. I know. And, uh, yeah. So I, I really loved being there. But I think by year two, sort of the entrepreneurial itch started coming back up for me. And, um, and I just really felt like that first five years of running a startup and going through all of the turmoil that first go around made me want to go try this again.
1: We uh, love the turmoil. That part yes. was awesome <laughs> Exactly, <laughs> yeah. for pain. Right.
0: Um, yeah. No, I think I, I just felt like maybe now that I know more, if I tried it again, it would, things would be a little easier, which I think is a false statement but uh, (laughs) hard in new ways yeah um so yeah i actually didn't though start a company right away i left planning to start a company and um got tapped by google ventures so i joined the investment side of the table for about two years
2: all part of this carefully plotted design exactly (laughs) (laughs)
0: exactly yeah literally i was working on my own ideas this came out of the blue and i thought yeah actually it'd be really amazing to join GV in particular, who is doing incredible things, instructive. Yeah. yeah, and also yes, you learn so much by sitting on the other side of the table—a perspective you don't get as an entrepreneur. How I mean, long? How did, go oh ahead.
1: Man, how did that go about? Uh, come about? Because that's not for the entrepreneurs who are listening. Like, wow, that's really cool. Especially Google Ventures, given the type of investments they make. How did that happen?
0: I think I was, it was just luck. I mean, you know, as many of these things are sort of network and a few connections and somebody that I'm, I had been speaking to before who must've mentioned my name to their team right when they were looking for somebody of my profile. And so- um yeah, I mean it went very quickly. I like I said I wasn't really considering that move and um and then within a week we had
2: all of the interviews and I had joined.
1: That's amazing, especially for Google week. You <laughs> don't really hear about that, right? <laughs> like a week just to set up a, a schedule and appointment go ahead.
2: How how long were you did you work at Google Ventures?
1: For about 2 years. Okay. Yeah. Well,
2: a great period of time. I mean, this is enough time where you could really sink in and and get a sense for how what what's the difference between a successful founder and, a, well, at least a successful pitch and an unsuccessful pitch. Is yes. that
0: right? I, I learned a lot. I would say two years to me, I mean, and this is how I evaluate other people too. Yeah. Two years is actually feels short to me. Um, I think for me at the end of two years, the modsy idea had sort of taken over my whole brain. And so I like had to go pursue it in venture two years is extremely short because you need like five to 10 years to see how investments that you've made will pan out. And so I feel like at the end of two years, I had just started to figure out how I might invest, (laughs) but I wasn't by no means good (laughs) at it yet. Not that, I don't know if they, anybody necessarily knows if they are or are not.
1: <laughs> and at Google Ventures, I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs, when they go on the investment side, often are venture partners or an, uh, an entrepreneur in residence. Did you already have the Modsi idea when you went over there or you knew you wanted to start something, but you also wanted to learn the investment side? So the focus was more investment versus entrepreneur.
0: Yeah. You know, I, what I did when I left Autodesk was I had sort of a list of ideas, um, which, now again, like in hindsight, and after being on the investment side, wouldn't be the approach I would take again. Mm-hmm. So I, I sort of said I want to start a business, and then I started brainstorming ideas. I think it's um, it's a lot more powerful when the idea comes to you as a problem in the world you want to solve. Um, so this was kind of in my mind a little bit because I had hit this problem personally over and over again, but it came kind of full force when my husband and I moved into an apartment here in San Francisco Mm -hmm. and I experienced this firsthand. And from that moment on, I just couldn't leave this idea alone.
2: So what was that experience? I mean, maybe this is a good time to talk about the, what do they call it? Ideation or, you know, what, what happened?
0: Yeah. So, um, I think not unlike many people as i've now found because uh we we found that many people at this point (laughs) um we moved into an apartment we had some furniture but we didn't certainly didn't have enough to kind of fill out the apartment even though san francisco is very small right um but trying to pick out a rug and lay out the kind of part of our living room correctly led to this complete indecision and it was because the rug is is not standalone It, it has to do with the paintings that we were thinking about on the wall and the sofa and, you know, sort of visualizing how this whole thing would come together basically left us completely paralyzed because we couldn't make any one of the decisions and total paralysis (laughs) exactly (laughs) exactly so i spent all these hours on pinterest i had this pin board i'd spent all this time looking at commerce sites and yet i still kind of kept coming back to it being like well i can't like really see how this would look so i'm not sure which of these directions we should go Mm -hmm. and even coming from 3d graphics i just didn't want to invest the time that it would take to mock that up right and so it was that moment that I kind of flipped through a physical catalog, like a West Elm catalog, looked at one of the images and I was like,
2: showing sure, a room all, right. all fully decked out, fully Is decked it, out, yeah. beautiful, you know, inspired, like, yes, yeah. please. I want to click on
0: that. That's exactly what I felt. I felt like, I wish I was having this experience. I just wish it was in my room and I could be like, quick, click, 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 done. Right. <laughs> um, so that was, that was kind of the prompt for me. It was uh, our own feeling of the inability to design our space, but feeling like I was living in a very empty space that wasn't complete. And then this idea that like visualization could really solve it in a in a unique way, not the visualization a lot of people were talking about. And then my know how I, I sort of looked at it and I'm like, well that's possible. Of you course can do I that. can do that. <laughs> I can do this. Yeah.
1: <laughs> in my spare time. So well well, so this is a great moment just to talk about for our listeners, like what is Modsi do? And we'll come back to that more sure. in depth.
0: Yeah. So um, For customers, they take a handful of pictures of a room, the room that they want to design, and they fill out kind of a profile, like answering questions about the use of the room. Um, They take a style quiz, uh, function of the room, et cetera. Like a
2: questionnaire that you provide to them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all part of the consumer experience. So the
0: photos plus kind of your your purposes for that room and your aesthetics. And we combine those two things together. On the back end, we create a uh, 3D model to scale accurate, super detailed, so it looks like a photograph quality of your room, and then we design it based on your profile. We, we give you two different designs and we render it out like a catalog, so multiple different images, um, camera angles in the room, a top-down view, a 360 view. Every item in the entire design is a real product from multiple retailers that you can actually buy. And so it comes back to you in this digital format that feels like literally you just got a catalog of your own space, fully designed, and then you can go through continued iterations. So you can uh, work with one of our designers or you can use our editor and make revisions from there. And for a lot of people, the cold start is the hard problem. Once we've given them a vision, they want to swap a couple of things out and then they're like, perfect. And then they make their decisions and buy and
1: design the room just like that in the real life. So you created what the catalog experience that you explained before, You they can visualize it, change it up, and then click and buy all the items. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's yeah. amazing.
2: So for people just joining us, you're listening to Bay Area Ventures. Our guest this hour is Shauna Tellerman, who's the CEO and founder of Modsy, which is a 3D... Uh, Interior design visualization, not very, what's what's the short caption that you use for your company? Yeah. I almost got it.
0: Yeah, it's a, a design service that lets you visualize products in your own home.
2: So the question I have for you, so you were talking about you, you, the first step is to contact the customer and get, you get a lot of inputs from the customer yeah. and then you take that back and slice it and dice it and you produce two two scenarios, two uh, uh, visualizations, if you will, do you usually usually get it right or close enough that the customer's thinking, God, that's pretty good? i hadn't thought it would look that good or it looked that shitty or I mean, <laughs> I mean how what's yeah. been the what's been the response from the customer?
0: Yeah, I mean we we aim to get it as close as possible. Yeah. We know that we'll never get it perfect yeah. because each person has their own unique taste and um and sort of like something that they're looking for, aesthetic that they're looking for. So we aim to get it kind of directionally right, the layout correct and the kinds of products, and then for you to kind of tweak it to make it your own. Uh, which I think is an important part of buying in and feeling like that really is your design versus a catalog where it's just going to be generic and the same for everybody. That's probably the biggest difference. Um, so we aim to get it as close as possible. We definitely miss sometimes, and you know that's, uh, I think, unavoidable in the world of subjective design. No kidding. Right. yeah.
1: <laughs> Maybe that's the fun of it, too. Right? Yeah. So, so
2: how do you take it from there? So you've got a picture that looks really cool on the screen, yeah. and so you can't just hit the button and say print what, what's the next step in the business model?
0: Yeah. So that it's all, it's all digital. So the customer can click on any of the products in the scene. They all have hotspots. So you can click on like a chair, a table, anything that you're seeing. You can see the product details if you choose oh, to. Oh, because you're actually,
2: it. you're downloading this from vendors who provide this stuff.
0: Yep. It's our, our catalog is made up of, uh, of multiple retailers, um, oh. that you've heard of. So West Elm, Crate and Barrel, CB2, yeah. uh, restoration hardware, uh, Um, and then some vendors that people have never heard of because we want to have as much variety as possible. Um, and so we, we have a whole system. This is where our technology comes in. So technology for us is the platform that allows us to visualize, but also the curation platform that recommends products to you based on your aesthetics. So ideally we match your style. You see the room, you see every product in the room and you can click on anything and you can either swap it out if you want to change it or you can purchase it.
1: Wow. So how do you choose? Cool. Your, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> how do you choose your vendors? Like you mentioned, we were reading about your partnership with Creighton Barrel CB2. You mentioned West Elm. How do you choose your your vendors? Yeah, so in in
0: furniture, I think it's it maybe is actually a little bit easier than a lot of categories in that there's not that many brand names that people can generally list from a furniture retailer standpoint. Mm-hmm. So you know, if I'd asked you, you'd probably name maybe five to ten and. That would be kind of the length of which you, you remember. Mm -hmm. So for most consumers, I think their kind of hit list is short. We wanted to work with all of the major brands that consumers are are familiar with, um, but then also provide those that are emerging up and coming brands you may not have heard of. So Interior Define, Joybird, those are some examples of newer brands. Um, for us, it's a blend. So first and foremost, we look at the aesthetics. Like, does So we have um, what we call a style genome that sits behind the scenes. Wow. So we match you to a certain style and aesthetic. We need to make sure we have enough coverage of those styles and aesthetics because mm-hmm. obviously West Elm is very different than restoration hardware right, from a right. look standpoint. Um, the next one would be quality of product. We want to make sure that the products we're recommending are things that aren't going to break, and right. <laughs> aren't going to be damaged. Yeah, so yeah. we obviously can't control it, but we are recommending it. So we want to make sure it's, it's okay. Um, price point matters to people. So we need to have a variety of price points. And then finally, obviously our economics. So we take a commission on the sales. uh, Mm -hmm. That's pretty standard from the vendor, from From the the furniture provider. Yeah. So it's called trade in the interior design language. And so you take a percentage, we actually get a discounted rate is the better way to say it than what a consumer could actually um, get on their own. And that spread is, is our profit margin. So we look at that in, in conjunction with everything else.
1: Yeah, as you mentioned this, I'm just thinking um, that, you know, ModC, I'm visualizing the idea of the business also that it's it's like a tool, obviously, that, you know, consumers can use, but it's also functioning as a channel, like a distribution channel for your vendors as well. So when you choose your vendors, I guess something you well, want my question is, I mean, that's a huge opportunity for them to reach your audience beyond what they can do in traditional brick and mortar or on their website by themselves. Have you gotten, what kind of feedback have you gotten from your vendors with regard to increasing, you know, customers, revenue, that sort of thing? Oh yeah, you've got it. Uh, (laughs) You you nailed the sweet spot of it. I think what we have is super
0: unusual. Mm -hmm. Um, We call it placement in the furniture category. There is no way to place products in your house such that you're like, Oh, that's perfect. I'm keeping it right without a lot of physical labor. So by being able to do this virtually, we increase one, the odds by our recommendation that you're going to end up probably picking that item because it looks really good in conjunction with all the other items we've put in there. Mm -hmm. Um, and that placement ability for the vendor is a huge opportunity for them to sell certain products. Um, so yeah, so I think it's a, it's incredible for the retailers. Also a design service itself just generally increases the number of things that you're going to consider purchasing. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you imagine you're kind of thinking about your living room, you're thinking about buying a rug. If you see the rug and you also see a side table and maybe a lamp, you're feeling like, oh, this is actually going to complete the space. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to end up buying multiple items instead of one item, which you know from a business standpoint, that's really important. But also from a customer standpoint, it's really important because when you look at those spaces that are really pleasing and when you feel like your space is really pleasing, it's usually because it's not empty. Right, right. <laughs> it feels a little bit filled out. It feels like to your taste, but it feels like something that um somebody has lives completeness there. To yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: You start feeling the warmth. I mean, the other thing that's really interesting, you mentioned, you know, the idea of trade, you have a commission on the sales, which it it sounds like that's how the business model works in the, I don't know, brick and mortar world. But do vendors also have to pay to be part of this community because there's so much value in it or right now it's just commission based? Yeah, just
0: commission based at this point. um, While that's an attractive opportunity and we might think about it down the line, Mm -hmm. we also want to play a pretty neutral um, third party marketplace standpoint with our customers. Mm -hmm. And so you know, we are going to have a stack ranking of vendors and there's going to be a lot of variables that go against that stack ranking. Mm -hmm. Eventually we could have sort of sponsored positions potentially so that it's really outright, but we also don't want to compromise the customer's experience where we're pushing a product to them that maybe isn't the right product, but it's because somebody's paid us to push it to them. that makes sense. So I think as long as, so the reverse is true, which is we want to kind of be aligned with our retail partners in that if we serve really really great products to our customers, they're going to purchase them in high volume. And so, um, so we should make a commission off of those sales. Mm
2: -hmm. You know, you, you make this sound simple. I mean, I understand, I understand the business model, which is there's a, a, you know, the consumer pays a, an advisory fee or some sort of thing. And then you get a commission from, um, furniture purchases off the vendor sites but the technology behind that, I've got to believe this is not simple. I mean, there is a ton of tech. I'm just reacting. It sounds like there's a ton of technology that makes this simple black box work. Is yes. that
0: accurate? Very true. the The behind the scenes for this business is extremely complex, and this is the reason right now we're really the only ones offering the visualization portion there's online interior design services but they don't have the 3d visualization combined with it which to me is actually the most powerful part of what we offer um, but you need the service element too, so you have to combine two really hard things. One is uh, technology development, so we have patent pending IP behind the um, behind the surface, and that allows us to do the 3D reconstruction as well as the 3D rendering of the designs. Um, and then we have to combine that with outstanding design services itself. Which it's kind is... of like there's
2: a, there must be like a curation component mm-hmm. because people the customers give you inputs here's style, price, size, blah blah blah, and then. The machine, this black box, yes. churns all that up and spits back. I mean, with I'm assuming with some human interventions, yes. it spits, spits back. Now a that couple might of design actually plans. be yeah.
0: one of the simpler. Not that it's simple, simpler pieces of technology actually oh, okay. is um, yeah. the algorithms to understand style match. Not simple, but simpler um, compared to like. Building a 3D reconstruction of a room that's accurate to scale from like eight photos. That's that's pretty complex magic (laughs) Yeah, not many people are tackling it a lot more people are trying to tackle kind of style match algorithms Yeah, Um, but then combined with and this is was new for me in this business um, operations of daily output. So we have a style network with real designers that actually do these designs that are all over the country wow. and they do our designs every single week. And as we're growing, we have to grow that network and make sure that we train them. We keep the quality high. Um, and that we do, we, um, stay at the capacity to meet the demand coming in from customers. So that operational component combined with the technology makes it uh, super complicated business. Wow. I'm impressed. That's yeah. amazing. What yeah. about
1: for Modsy if I'm a customer and I I go on the Modsy site to get the design expertise and then I get to play around like, oh, they m- recommended this couch but I like that red velvet couch. I'm switching that up um, versus like how the visibility of Modsy, the technology in the store. I think we're reading about again, Crate and Barrel. If you go in the store, their designers can utilize Modsy. Is that, you know, powered by Modsy from a branding standpoint or is it just like Modsy's here online, Modsy's there in person? How do you guys think about that?
0: Yeah. So it's a great question. So, uh, from day one, I knew that this was not going to be a B2B company Mm -hmm. because consumers shop across multiple retailers. Mm -hmm. Um, so the very few partnerships that we've decided to, um, to go after and to open up, they were sort of like a multitude of things. One is the powered buy is obviously great from a branding standpoint, but Crate and Barrel and C B two, they're under one brand family. Right. They they are one of those retailers that especially the demographic of our customer base Uh, Their products are really spot on. Their price points are really spot on. So we knew that if we formed a partnership, it would work on multiple levels. It would enhance our product catalog. Um, We could power their design services. We could build a really strong um, connection from a data perspective so that we could iterate together. And that's that's played out to be true. But Mm -hmm. it's really only been a very select number of retailers that we wanted to do that kind of partnership with.
1: Got it. We we're talking about use cases and how customers can experience Modsy. And I thought like, for um, listeners who are interested in checking it out, if you could talk about, Shauna the packages that you offer um, as a starting point, what they can expect.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, you were asking about the history of pricing. Right. So we actually started with one price point. Um, which I think for those that have ever done pricing analysis and pricing studies, they'd probably balk at like that was a I terrible know. idea. <laughs> Sounds like a headache to me. So yeah, the problem with one price is that you put a lot of this of consumers with different needs into the same bucket and mm-hmm. then you can disappoint them on both sides. Um, so for some customers, that felt like a very high price point. For other customers, it felt low and, um, inexpensive, but they had high expectations of the service level. So we very quickly realized that we probably had at least two different customers. And so we segmented it. Um, at that point, we moved it to, I think it was 99 then 199 For
2: For what? What are the packages that you're talking about?
0: Yeah. So the service package became um, our basic package, which was the two different design visualizations from and, our design network. And that costs... That was ninety nine. Okay. Um, was. I say yeah, was yeah, changed then. Right. Um, and then our one ninety nine, which um, allowed you to have a one on one relationship with one of the designers mm. to do consultations after the fact and to do the revisions. So if some people really valued that kind of that person that was going to be connected to them through the whole experience. Um, Other people really, they felt like they wanted the service to be a little bit more neutral and they didn't, they wanted more of the power to experiment and iterate. Mm. You can obviously continue to do revisions with designers, but we will match you with whichever designer is available. So there were sort of two different price points at that point. We had customers self-selecting into these two different prices. 99 was still a little bit expensive because for a lot of people, design services is not something they were considering. An interior, you know, compared to an interior designer, that's right. very cheap. But if you're not planning to hire an interior designer, paying anything before you buy furniture sounds expensive. Right. So
2: it's, had- kind of, it's kind of a process of evangelizing the consumer base, mm-hmm. right?
0: Yeah, exactly. And you know, think of. Things like meal meal services like blue apron yeah. or like a design service like stitch fix right like consumers didn't necessarily know they needed these things but once made accessible and affordable it became a really convenient thing to use oh, yeah. so very similar uh, mindset here and we realized um, that we should experiment with the price point, And we had the opportunity because our technology was automating more behind the scenes. So the original price point when we started for us to do this for mm-hmm. customers was $1,000 per customer. Wow. And we brought it down over time and then eventually got it to the point we could support $69. Um, and today actually a $59 entry price point. And that's your basic package. And wow. then uh, and then we brought the 199 down to 149 And then just last week, we actually introduced a middle between the two because we realized one more thing, which is the speed with which we turn around these designs is really important to the customer. And some customers uh, value a much faster turnaround. Expedited yeah. service. Yeah. Exactly. So we added some uh, expedited features to the 149 and then the $79, which is a little bit more expedited than the basic package.
1: How did you leverage technology to come to this conclusion or not? How did you learn all of this stuff?
0: It's a great question. I mean, we did do A-B testing on our pricing. It's complicated to do A-B testing on pricing because customers may see one price and then come back and see another price if you haven't set everything up correctly in your funnel. Um, But we did So we did a bit of that, but we also tracked our metrics very, very closely. So we would oftentimes, uh, if we couldn't afford to do an A-B test because of the speed of which we wanted to launch something, we would launch it and then we'd look at our conversion metrics and our mm-hmm. conversion funnel and see if there was any major chain change. Plus, we look at the quality of the customer on the other end. So we didn't want to make the price point so low that the customer coming in had no intention of purchasing. So okay. for
2: people who are listening and, and are aspiring entrepreneurs and thinking, geez, I've got this great product, how do I price it? This is not an exercise in dead reckoning. This is not where you lick your finger and stick it in the air and say, I like the
1: number 49. That's going (laughs) to work, right? (laughs) That's not going to happen. This is, it's
2: complicated. And and there's a lot of analysis and slicing and dicing of consumer behaviors to get to an optimal price. Is that?
0: Agreed. Um, I would say, though, that uh, I think you always do as the, especially the founder, if you know your audience really well and you know your product really well, you do have a little bit of that gut feeling of what's the right place to start. So I will say when we priced at 99, that was because it cost us $99. My gut was telling me this should be closer to 49 or $59 as the, you know, previous consumer of I was the person who was struggling and was looking for a service like this, yeah, yeah. that would have felt like the right range for me. So there
2: is some intuition that goes into yes, it, but then you have yeah. to
0: validate it. Obviously.
2: I wonder if we can, uh, let's shift gears. So, um, as we talked about over the break, give give us a snapshot of the company. Where is it located? How many employees? Is it venture backed? If so, how much venture backing? Uh, any sort of indications of traction from a commercial success standpoint? I mean, just give people a sense of modsy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we are based in San Francisco, um, just a few blocks from here, and we're about 80 full-time employees. Um, The total sum of the company, because our Style Network is not uh, full-time employees, is um, in the hundreds. We have like maybe 300 or so. Um, We've grown very, very quickly. So the company's three and a half years old.
2: Oh, founded in 2015? Founded in 2015.
0: Um, We've raised a little over 33 million in funding through, uh, we're at the Series B stage. So we've had uh, three different funding rounds to date. yeah, and then in terms of consumer metrics, we haven't released full numbers, but we uh, 10x'd our base last year. We're on track to 10x our revenue again this year.
2: I mean, I, as we were commenting, I always think, I mean, this is as glib or facile as it may seem. I always think that when you have an institutional venture capital firm write a check for money, that that is it's not a very good proxy, but it is a, I think it's a, indicative form of validation of your business model you must be doing something right for people to write checks for that amount of cash i mean don't you see it that way too
0: yes and and i also think that that it's kind of like a self-propelling cycle right so i do think that i mean we we can talk about kind of female founders or male founders at some point but um Being backed by institutional investors does create more likelihood that you will also succeed as a business, and um, and then having a business that's backed by them means that you are onto something as a business, and they they sort of go hand
1: in hand. It's hard to it's like for sure. I mean, one begets the other. Absolutely. And how are you thinking when you raise this capital? How have you deployed it? or how do you, or maybe you need to continue You're in the process of deploying it right yeah. now. Yeah, I, I would say, I mean, your
0: biggest expense is always people. Right. Um, and so we uh, are very heavily, um, Well, actually, probably split between engineering and product, which is one big piece of our company. And obviously, building out the technology um, is both our biggest investment and our biggest cost. And then operations, which is managing what is now a very large pipeline of customers that come through every day and every week and making sure that we fulfill the design service for them so we get that design that is unique and wonderful and accommodated for them, but we want to get it out to them as quickly as possible.
2: So, so maybe we can talk about what you alluded to. I mean, we don't—we're not able. We're always looking for women founders of venture-backed startup companies, and you're you're, you're sitting in the chair. So maybe you can—I don't know—I don't have any—I don't have any glib questions. But if you have, I mean, do you have any thoughts or insights about kind of your experience in raising money? I mean, it's clearly a—it's a guy-dominated thing, right? Okay. And, you know, you've been out successfully. We were talking over the break. You raised money starting at a seed level from one of the, you know, great institutional venture capital firms here in the Bay Area, Norwest Ventures. And maybe you can weave those two themes together where you're out raising money and uh, showing up in an office that probably is filled with a bunch of guys writing checks or not. Yep, pretty much. (laughs) That is how it it is out here.
0: Um, You know, I think this is a really hard problem to tackle. One key piece of it is definitely having a female mentor that is connected into the kind of inside Silicon Valley Boys Club. And so I was very lucky coming out of Carnegie Mellon. There was another Carnegie Mellon grad who sort of took me under her wing, Cindy Padnos, whose um, fund is Illuminate Ventures. Um, And so she has been a VC for a long time. Also, when I first came out here to, you know, to kind of 2007-ish time. Um, it was even a little different than it is today. Right, uh, right, Fast forward over 10 years later. and I can see she's picking your words carefully. <laughs> yes, that's right. You yeah, that. <laughs> yeah it's, uh, you know, it's become a different machine out here. At that point, I think... Um, she was connected to and would make introductions and people were even more open, um, cause it is a very give back culture. And mm-hmm. so she introduced me to a lot of people that even if they didn't fund my first company, they became connections that I stayed in touch with yeah. and we ran into each other for 10 years post. It's called a Rolodex. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that helps a lot. Obviously starting a company, going after it, um, succeeding in some ways, failing in other ways, having that whole life cycle under your belt, um, that helps when you want to go raise capital and coming from venture capital so i think i had a couple right. of things stuck up oh, that right. helped right. yeah. um but it's really hard because i mean that none of that was intentional i didn't pave that path but um you know it's not it's not an easy world to break into and it's not easy to be taken seriously um when it's a cold start
1: right how do you feel like the culture is evolving or not with respect to that imbalance Yeah, I I, you know I always feel like there's I see more
0: women in um, investing roles, but I'm not sure the numbers are actually backing that up, and it might just be because I seek them out, (laughs) look for women that are in those roles, and try to bring together a community. Mm I you know I I would say I don't think we're even close to there yet, and Mm -hmm. it's because generally you'll go to a firm and you'll find one, maybe two female partners. Um, and then you look at the very top tier venture firms out there and none of those are led by or started by women. And the new funds that have emerged that are started by women, fantastic women, they haven't yet built that credibility and that performance over it's time. Takes time. Right, yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, so it's uh, hard. I
2: wonder if you can talk about, um, I mean, this is cliched, but nevertheless, I mean, it's. I'm intrigued by the fact when I was looking through your, some of your press releases, that Norwest came in a, as a seed investor, and then, which means a, a modest, very modest amount of money to start, and then they led; they were the lead investor in your what we call an institutional round. So, uh, a, a bigger, a bigger chunk of money for the sale of your Series A preferred stock, yep. and then in the Series B round, you're bringing in a new investor to lead. But Norwest is right there. Yep. So it sounds like it's kind of like this is it's too good to be true. I mean, how hard was it for you to find a Norwest to be a steady, patient investor through three different levels of financing?
0: Well, I think you know any any fund that's smart is going to try to get in as early as possible, own a good chunk, and then continue to invest at every round so that they maintain their ownership or even increase mm-hmm. it sometimes, right? Um, the I think the gamble you take as an entrepreneur, though, at the seed round is if you bring in an institutional investor and they don't invest in your next round, it signals poorly. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't bring in an institutional investor in your seed round, you're kind of cold starting the process with all of the potential Series A investors. Maybe you've warmed it up a little bit, mm-hmm. but they're not inside intimately seeing what you've executed upon. And so... This was, again, I mean, maybe my theme is that I don't overthink everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this was really, uh, I, I met Jeff Crow because um, actually we were. Do- I was um, doing the deal on Jet.com at Google Ventures before I left. And so that was happening about the same time as I was like, I got to go start Modsy. Um I synced up with him because- So who's Jeff Crow? The- Jeff Crow's on our board. He is a managing director, managing partner over at Northwest. Um, incredible, incredible investor. But uh, we, we got introduced kind of purely by accident. Um, I told him at the end, hey, I'm going to connect you to a, another partner who's taking over the deal. I'm, I'm headed out. And he said, what are you doing? And wow. I told him about the company and we met. And he's just one of those people that when I met him, his enthusiasm, his positivity, plus his experience, I was like, I want to work with this person. Wow. And I felt super lucky that he wanted to work with me. So
2: let me just ask one question because, I mean, this is, again in the service of people who are listening and not having been through this process before. So you knew, I mean, you went into Norwest taking money from them at the seed round with your eyes open because you knew, I mean, life is always risky. And if you screwed up and Norwest didn't vote with their feet for the, for the series a round, I mean, that really is a death knell for you, but you're thinking for people who are listening is that your wisdom so if you can run if you can encounter people like jeff crow or you know managing partners of institutional vc firms is that a worthwhile bet how do you think of that oh, it's almost a philosophical question
0: yeah i, I do think it, it it has to do with the partner your connection with a partner and their belief in in the business in you and in me and the yeah. business right and and i think if you don't feel that connection at the beginning when you first meet them then it is pretty risky to bring in an institutional investor at that stage. But if you feel like this person believes in what we're doing, this person sees the path to success, and I really want to work with this person, I feel like that's a gamble worth taking.
2: Good to go. If you're just joining us, this is Bay Area Ventures. Our guest this hour is Shana Tellerman, who's the CEO and founder of a, a, a furniture design technology-based um 3D company. <laughs> 3D How am I doing so far? <laughs> Bingo, right? You yeah. got all the words um, we're talking about fundraising, which is always, you know, people think it's easy. People think that in the Bay Area, you know, money grows on trees. All the All the current press releases indicate that this is, 2018 is going to generate the most fundraising and the most venture capital dollars invested in deals of any year so far in the history of Silicon Valley. So... Um,
1: That's saying something.
2: It's a lot of money. But nevertheless, it doesn't grow on trees. And the fact is you're out there hand-to-hand combat trying to find those first dollars, which are pretty important.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and I'd say it's concentrated. So the fact that there's a lot of capital doesn't mean that it's going into the same, a a, a wider range of companies. It may, in fact, be more concentrated into fewer companies.
2: So so now I want to shift this conversation back to you, Shauna, which is, okay, now you've got... It's good news and bad news. You've got this big 800-pound gorilla that's written you a big check, and it's you know there in your bank in the company's bank account, and now you've got people looking steely-eyed at you, sitting on your board, expecting with a hockey stick slide in the background (laughs) as they're having that conversation with you, right? So, (laughs) I mean, this hasn't been an easy. I mean, like any journey, it's it has lots of uh, corners and speed bumps and so forth. So I guess my question is directed at you, which is how does it feel to be the CEO of a company with 80 employees and, you know, having raised 33 million bucks? I mean, that's... I'd be (laughs) hyperventilating.
0: You know, I think like you ease into it because it starts smaller and you realize that things are kind of always breaking and there's always challenges. So by the time it's at that level, you've sort of barely noticed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I think, you know, some things just at the point that certain things get easier and new things gets hard is, is sort of the way that I think about the business. So whatever fire we were fighting last year at this time that I thought might destroy the whole business has been put out is in probably in good shape or has reemerged as a new problem. (laughs) Um, But then usually some new part of the business is what we're trying to grapple with at that moment. Um, Actually, I was thinking about it on my way over. I think business is just like that. There's sort of always some piece of it, which is why it's so hard, but also so fun. So much fun. Yeah. It's a different problem every
1: day. (laughs) Um, so as CEO, so you know, as a CEO and founder, it could be lonely at the top. Even though you have a great group of people you work with, who do you turn to when you have those sleepless nights? When you have the new version of the old problem and need advice or something, you know, to bounce off ideas or thoughts with?
0: Yeah, probably first my husband. Mm-hmm. Um, he's uh, very like very different than me. I sort of am like love the ideas, love the motivation, love the people side of this. And he has such like a logical financial mindset when it comes to businesses. Um, and he has an MBA. He has a more traditional training too, which helps because every once in yeah. a while he's like, "You should read this book."
1: <laughs> like, oh, that's why. I'm sure, go my to free time. School. Yeah, I will do that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I did actually. One of them, I was Good like, "Oh, you. this is game changing." Um, but yeah, I think that he's he's sort of my first sounding board. Um, mm-hmm. Second would be our board. Um, I think that's why it's really important that you find great investors. You build a great board. Ours is small, intentionally kept it really small, just bringing on one. Because each round. you're building
2: yeah. personal relationships. Right. You need to be able to pick up a phone and call a Jeff Crow and say, God, I'm, I'm stumped on the, how should I think about this? Exactly. I mean, is that what you're talking about?
0: Absolutely. And in fact, um, even some, some of the investors not on my board are, are people that I, I turn to when there's a, a problem I want to think through. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I think this is my second go round, biggest learning in difference is that. Uh, I am unafraid of putting the problems at the forefront of the business because a, an experienced board and investor knows that you're having them and they want to hear what they are, not be surprised. Whereas your first time around, you kind of think, my job is to sell you on everything is great right. and then figure out how to solve it by the And keep your scenes. cards close to your <laughs> right, vest that so right. only so, oh, you know what
2: the hand drawing exactly. looks like. Yeah. But it's
0: much better if you're transparent about it, open about it. The board knows what, what the business is dealing with, can help lean in and help solve it, uh, put pressure on you at the right times to solve it. Or connect you to you know whatever it might be an agency that can help recruit or can help with marketing or whatever whatever problems you're solving.
1: That's great advice and wisdom for entrepreneurs who are listening from a raising capital perspective, um, because it's hard to raise capital as you mentioned, Shauna, I mean it's concentrated whether concentrated in a sector or concentrated amongst a few firms that sort of thing. And it's great advice to think about that. You know all money is green. However, the abstract is you gotta choose wisely. You gotta make sure there's chemistry. You gotta feel like you're in the proverbial foxhole with that person also and it sounds like that's been your experience definitely my, my second time around i think the the first company i learned a lot of these lessons the
0: hard way yeah. <laughs> we had a few investors in there that made it very challenging to operate and i didn't know what i was doing so i think i made it more challenging for myself to operate
1: mm-hmm.
2: so just to ask a frank question how good are you at managing people I mean, um, isn't that? a like, is, I feel like that's... you should ask
1: my team. Not yeah. 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 Well, How's it going? Yeah. <laughs> we're going to
2: send out a survey. We might get
1: some calls. I don't know.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, isn't that's that's a big piece of what you do, isn't it?
0: Definitely, definitely. I I mean, I think I'm constantly on a a learning journey there. So no matter how good you think you are, you can always be much much better. So I really like people, so that helps, and I like care a lot about the people that come to work at Modzy, and I really believe in people. So when somebody comes, like. My instinct is I'm going to fully trust you and I think you're amazing and I want you to do amazing work. And if for some reason you're not, I'm going to assume that we've pointed you at the wrong problem, not that you're not an amazing person. So that I think it it helps because I think people feel motivated and feel like they're trusted. Um, But that said, I mean, I've had my very large number and fair shares of uh, things I've done wrong and lessons learned along the way. Um, specifically like one of the things I've always worked on is, uh, when I get anxious about a problem, I need to be careful not to spread the anxiety across my team, um, which is, uh, sort of naturally happens, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So what are some of the, um, really fascinating or interesting, you know, tidbits you've learned from your customers? You mentioned you track analytics, for example, but surprises, what are some of the most interesting things you've learned? You know, I think the biggest surprise for me has
0: been, um, the level of repeat in furniture. So people always ask me like, this is going to be a hard business because you sell them a design service for one room, one time they buy enough their furniture and then they don't buy a sofa for eight years, right? Yeah, I, yeah. That's like that natural feeling. But actually almost nobody designs their room like, okay, done. I've bought every single item in my entire room and i am completed it overnight or over a weekend. Most people add slowly to their room. So I, th- I think the most interesting thing is that our customers actually come in for the design service. They get access to this design in their virtual room for life. They buy a few things and then they come back and they keep adding to the space so that they can complete the entire environment. They wanna see a few things in context, get them in, get settled, make sure they like that everything feels right. And then they kind of buy the next layer. So that's been my biggest That's price. really
1: interesting. I would think the former also. I've got a bed. I'm done for 13 years until it starts getting squishy in the middle. But, exactly. but to your point about enhancing the room and adding and a nightstand in the, and right.
0: you need a lamp and you need a wall hanging and you need a mirror. Yeah, all those things add to the room. Yeah, it's
2: like you're depending on people being fickle in order to, to promote your product. <laughs> <laughs> they are. Yeah. <laughs> We've only got a minute or two left. I wonder, uh, again, it's kind of a cliche question, but... You know there are people out there who are taking notes and listening and carefully, you know, uh, evaluating what you're saying. Is a startup company for everybody? What's I mean, what is what one or two kind of essential qualities that make you like what you're doing in respect of a startup?
0: Yeah, definitely it's not for everybody <laughs> because I think you have to be a little bit insane. Like there's like a missing part was, of my I brand. wasn't going to say <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, you have to be, you know, you have to be able to ignore the uh, like obvious thing that's always staring mm-hmm. you in the face, which is like this part of the business is failing and like, right. and then irrationally believe that you're going to solve it in a very short time and that it won't fail. And, you know, and, and you do that over and over again and you gain some amount of confidence, but Um, But you have to stay sane and you have to stay positive. And for a lot of people, I think it can weigh really, really heavily on them. And I I wouldn't recommend it because it can really weigh on you and your relationships and it can take over your life. So you you have to to be able to um, have a piece of your brain that just doesn't think. Right, right. (laughs) Know thyself, if you will, right?
2: (laughs) Unfortunately, and I knew this was going to happen, time has passed quickly and we are out of time. Shauna, it's been great having you on board. Yeah, thank you. Um, so if people want to learn more about Modsy, where do, where do they go?
0: Uh, they can go to our website.
2: How, how do you spell Modsy for people listening? Great
0: question. M-O-D-S-Y dot com. I say it's short for modern and easy way to design. There we are. <laughs> for more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.